everyone, and welcome to issue 15 of Hey, That's Comics. As always, I am your host, Gary Webb. I know it's not Monday, but on the positive note, the delay wasn't due to problems this week, but rather someone being nice enough to hook me up with Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Played it, loved it, beat it. Can't recommend it enough. I know, video games aren't why we're here, so rather than bore you with the details, I'm going to let you know that I joined the Enthusiast Life this week to talk about why we loved it, a link to which you can find in the show notes, alongside all of the ways you can reach out to me for anything about the show or the world of comics in general at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can email me at HeyThat'sComics at Outlook.com, or you can use that other link in the notes to send me an audio message or play on air and incorporate it right into the show. Thanks for coming to get down and nerdy with me, and with that, let's get into our only segment this week with the second half of our look at DC's 52 in the Comic Club. The Comic Club. We come back into issue 27 with all of our plot lines well on their way, though with plenty of twists yet to come. We rejoin Ralph, still guided by the Helm of Fate, insisting on a detour to pay a visit to the Spectre, the instrument of God's wrath that we talked about in issue 11. Ralph's come to see if there might not be another path to bringing back Sue, to which Spectre offers an alternative. Join with the Spectre as its host and bring God's vengeance upon those deserving, beginning with the culprit behind Sue's death, Jean Loring. They transition to where she is, and she lashes out, mocking Sue and driven with rage. Ralph seizes her as they disappear in a flash of light, with him promising to show her what hell truly is. They reappear 84 weeks in the past, the home of the Dibneys. It's taken him a moment to restrain Jean, with them knocking over a vase, the sound of which draws Sue from the kitchen. If you remember, I pointed out at the time that the sound she heard in Identity Crisis would come back into play. The entire time since, we never had an answer as to what caused it, but we finally get one here as Ralph forces Jean to watch exactly what she does to Sue. This isn't enough for him, though, as he uses some of the borrowed power from the Spectre and uncrazies Jean, making her witness it with absolute clarity. He drags her in to watch, and the agony on display as history runs its course is almost frightening in its intensity before Ralph can stand it no longer, backing down. Unable to embrace the vengeance necessary to become the Spectre, Ralph directs Fate to take them to Nanda Parbat with one quick stop on the way. We pause briefly on Skeets, who is still on the hunt for the man who's caught onto his game, Rip Hunter, with the search leading him to the Wave to Wave Rider. Now, in brief, Wave Rider was a man who, when attempting to travel through time, gained the ability to move along the time stream at will, which he used to guard its integrity as one of the linear men. Getting no help in his search from the Wave Rider, Skeets kills him while adding a sick twist with him gloating that his golden metallic shell will be built out of Rider's corpse when it's found 500 years from now. Paradox aside, it's a fairly chilling twist. In Nanda Parbat, Rene Montoya is being introduced to the school of Charlie's former teacher Richard Dragon. Unending days blend together as he trains her not only physically, but is also pushing her emotionally to move beyond the self-destructive cycle in which she finds herself trapped. The process is made all the more difficult as we get to the core of Charlie's repeated attempts at getting her to give up cigarettes as he starts wasting away due to lung cancer. He's known this entire time that his days were numbered as we begin to build to one of the most heart-wrenching moments in comics. Before we get to that, though, there's the matter of the crime Bible they stole from the sanctuary in Yemen that Charlie's friend Tot has been trying to study. 
He finds a troubling passage about their goals relating to Gotham, the twice-named Daughter of Cain, which sends comprehension shooting through Renee's body as she realizes that Kate Cain is the target, that one being clearly depicted in the book. From there, it's back to Gotham, where, after a struggle, they manage to make contact with Kate. They launch a steam operation, managing to draw out Bruno Mannheim, Endergain's leader, but he manages to evade them and go on the run. Now, before we check back in with our trio in outer space, we get a brief stop with the other member of the away team, the robot, the Red Tornado, who's had his head attached to a makeshift body. His benefactor is one of a native Australian tribe that uses Tornado to drive off men seeking their traditional lands. At first it works before R.T., still chanting 52, goes haywire and has to be brought down, leaving Johnny to be arrested and Tornado's remains left in the hands of inner game. Now, Starside, Archbishop Lobo is desperately trying to help them evade the giant green skull that is Ekron on the hunt for his lost eye. They come up with a plan for defeating Ekron, but find, he finds them before they can enact it as battle ensues. They get it momentarily contained when they notice it's, be it's bearing a Green Lantern insignia. This isn't some monster, it's a member of the Corps, and Lobo stole its power ring, its eye, leaving it and its sector defenseless before the Stygian Passover and its Queen Sticks. The carrot on top of the cake is that the Horde is heading towards Earth, because of course it is, and only this ragtag group can stop it. It's a rather depressing sight at the JSA headquarters, as, given the traumatic recent events, only Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, and Ted Knight are the only three to show up for the annual Thanksgiving dinner with the Justice League. That these, the original champions, are questioning whether their time has passed them on, particularly in light of those they've lost, when the point is reinforced by a parade of Lex Luthor's Infinity Inc. The line truly gets crossed when they announce their new member, Jade, who usurps Alan's dead daughter's identity, which pushes his already unstable son, Obsidian, over the edge. Todd lashes out, disregarding the risk to bystanders, only to eventually be brought under control when Alan inserts himself to the conflict. A withering back and forth on the matter of respect between Alan and Infinity after the incident, and they all part ways. Meanwhile, John Henry uncovers yet another layer into Lex's new procedure. It has an expiration date, as he finds when the steel begins to peel off from his body. Now, despite their current tropical location, the Mad Doctors on Oolong Island are on the festive mood as they carve up the genetically engineered turkey via chainsaw. I mean, really, it's a pretty decent idea, as this gives him a dozen drumsticks to pass around, but Will's distinctly uncomfortable here. Egg Fu, the giant egg guy, is extremely mad at not being invited to dinner and has heard all of them whispering mockingly behind his back. It's when he focuses his rage on Will's lack of progress that the secret comes out that it's the medications that are holding him back. Well, Egg Fu decides this is easily solved over Will begging them not to. They confiscate his supply, sending him back down into the realms of madness. It's right around here we get our first visit with the Waynes, as Nightwing and Robin are following behind Bruce, debating as to what the end goal is with this journey. They come across some stragglers that Bruce hadn't taken down en route to his goal, so they finish cleaning things up, only to come across an abandoned caping cow as we transition back to Renee and Gotham. Not only did they not nail Mannheim, Charlie's condition is rapidly bottoming out. Kate arranges for an in-home physician who recommends moving him into a hospital as delirium will soon set in, but Renee just won't do it. Kate insists that they stay here as they have nowhere else to go before moving on to her costume nightlife as Renee goes back to sit with Charlie following his lead of old and meditating. You can see exactly how Charlie's coming to affect Montoya as she finds a new path and it's all setting up for the payoff we have coming later. 
Nightwing, having chosen to return to Gotham to combat the rising inner gang, Tim follows Bruce's trail into the desert where he finds Bruce screaming that the Batman is gone, following a metaphysical ritual with the Ten-Eyed Men. You're really left questioning whether Bruce has truly gone off the deep end when we jump back to Kane, throwing down with some of Bruno's monster men, trying to get a lead on the man himself. The numbers are starting to catch up with her when she calls Dick at to step out of the shadows, who swoops in with a cheesy pickup line. Man, is he barking up the wrong tree here, but they work well together anyway, winning the fight and agreeing to work together to stop the rising tide of inner game. In space, the Stygian Passover continues its destructive rampage across the galaxy as even the Guardians of Oa find it to be something outside of their experience. We see Captain Comet struggle valiantly to halt their progress on Vardu, but it is in vain and they capture him instead. After undergoing extensive torture, the Stygians mount him to the front of their flagship, with sticks devouring the power rings of the Fallen Lanterns, as our heroes watch on in horror at the destruction. Strange and Starfire try to convince Animal Man to escape back to Earth, but he refuses, saying that they have to stop the Passover here and now. How exactly they plan to do that with just the three of them, the giant green skull of Ekron, and a pacifist Loki is a question I think is well worth asking. In Metropolis, we start to spend a bit of time with Infinity Inc. off the clock, although it's still not a whole lot. There's some concern amongst them over Hannibal, codenamed Everyman, who gives off a decidedly creepy vibe. He's got the ability to shapelift, to look like anything, but he has to consume some of its organic material first. Nat's boyfriend Jake makes a wildly inappropriate joke about it, which gets him into trouble with Nat, but they kiss and make up. It's as Natasha leaves, however, that it's revealed to be Hannibal in disguise. I wonder where Jake's at. We join Lex getting an update on an everyman candidate whose body is rejecting the process despite everything coming up good on his screenings. It's at the point where continuing to try may kill him, but Lex could care less. Keep trying and damn the consequences. He then gives Infinity Inc. their Christmas presents from him, and while they race off to play with their new cars, he receives something of as well. Another failed personal screening. He still can't take advantage of his own breakthrough. As he's again disappointed, Dr. Laughlin runs in with the great news that an X-Factor has saved the boy's life and he can now become an everyman. That is phenomenal news. Now harvest his organs and do a full workup to find out what changed. The horrified doctor is left with no alternative except to follow orders. Over on the other side of town at Memorial Park, a pilgrimage to Connor's grave by Cassie is interrupted by a visit by Ralph and the Helm of Fate. To some outward appearances, Ralph seems more in control, acting with decisiveness again, but he's frequently sipping from a flask at this point, illustrating that he may not be in as in control as he acts. We find Cassie with a very different outlook, having found out that Devin was a fraud, but Ralph tells her not to think it was all a waste. They were clearly onto something as they'd almost succeeded in bringing back Sue. Of course the resurrections are real, she says. Connor is back as Supernova. That halts our detective up for a moment, leading him to seek out Nova. We don't find out the secret here, but it's clear that Ralph has put it all together and knows who Nova is. Nova feels bad for Cassie's mistake, but things are moving too quickly for him to do anything about it now. I haven't made a big point about it, but the mystery behind Supernova's identity is a pretty big deal and recontextualized a large part of the story, which once we figured it out, but we'll get there shortly. Ralph continues his journey, this time to the Himalayas, nearly reaching his destination where he's ambushed by a giant snow creature. He comes to three days later in Nanda Parbat, having been saved by a member of China's Great Ten, the accomplished perfect physician. 
His request to meet with Ramakrishna, the goddess-like being that watches over the place, has been denied, but before he really has a chance to argue, the physician drags him along to help him bring down the Yeti that is a member of the Great Ten that has lost control. Our two heroes manage to get the amulet that contains its rage around its necks, quelling the beast, which gains Ralph access to Kushna, but is left with only cryptic hints as he again moves on to his quest to rejoin Sue. His winding road eventually leads him back to the city where it all began, Central City, specifically the Flash Museum, where he manages to find the gun that he came seeking in between dive to the bottom of his ever-present flask. He blows off Fate's warning about mixing magic and alcohol before moving on to Atlantis where he gains yet another artifact he'll need to succeed in his quest. We've been going a little while here at this point, and so far we've yet to stop in with Kandak's royal family, so we'll do that now, joining a recruitment drive in progress at Titan's Tower. Amon, now wielding the power of Osiris, is eager to join his peers in battle, but is met with hesitation. Outside of the flag he flew in with Sobek, the mutated crocodile they found at Savannah's, he's related to Black Adam, who ripped a man in half just weeks ago on worldwide television. With Isis and her brother at his side, Adam has begun to turn over a new leaf, but the ch that changes nothing about his actions before. Raven senses a strong well of hope in him, so they set him a challenge. Convince the world of his intentions, and they'll gladly accept him into their ranks. From there, Isis Os and Osiris begin pushing for Adam to work at changing the world's perception of him, and we truly get a glimpse of just how far he's come as... In a televised moment from the Kondok Embassy, they all change into their mortal forms, showing that, hey, they're people too. Now, the reason this is such a big thing is that, traditionally, Adam saw his true self as a sign of weakness and would never have revealed himself in this way were it not for his new family. Not everyone is convinced he's changed, however, as we see Amanda Waller has assembled a new suicide squad to go bring the former dictator down. A few days later, after Osiris' first meeting with the Titans, he is met on his way back by Black Adam and Isis before they are immediately ambushed by the Suicide Squad who's launching their attack. They battle back and forth, but when Adriana is feeling the bite of Persuader's axe, Osiris, in a panic, launches himself at him, the impact of which rips Persuader in half. Overcome with the results of his actions, Osiris is desolated as Adam brings the family home and we cut to Count Vertigo updating Waller who is unfazed by the turn of events. She got exactly what she wanted from here having filmed the entire thing and is going to use it to help bring them down. We then see our first shot of Barbara Gordon, still Oracle at this time, running mission control as allies get into a position to run some interference with Infinity Inc. and their chaperone Mercy Graves, Lex's right hand. The girls are out on a shopping spree when the clerk informs them that the card has been declined. Now, Mercy is absolutely furious at this. Lex doesn't run out of money, but I mean, she's forced to wait the authorities while the girls are separately escorted out. Here we find out the goal is Nat is met on a back staircase by her Uncle John. He's not there to force her to his point of view this time, but rather gives her all the facts that he's uncovered, including his guess as to what happened with Trajectory and Blockbuster, and leaves her to form her own conclusions. This is a big step for him, as he's finally accepting that Natasha is going to make her own decisions, and he has to trust that he helped raise her right, and leads her to draw on her own genius-level intellect to sort it all out. Now, speaking of Lex, he's not just sitting idly by, waiting for his charters to come home from spending his money. Instead, he's still on the hunt, convinced that Supernova is, in fact, Superman toying with him, and he's determined to have the truth. To that end, he's abducted the reporter, Clark Kent, who's long been associated with Superman, to dig for the truth. 
Now, keep in mind, Clark's still basically powerless following his battle with Superboy Prime and Infinite Crisis, so he's in no shape to avoid or even resist the attempts. Flex never realizes that he has his target and is completely oblivious as, after injecting Kent with an experimental truth drug, he merely asks if the two are in fact the same, which of course Clark can truthfully answer in a definitive, no, Supernova is not Superman. Flex was so close here. But that's not the question he asked. He still doesn't get the answer that he was hoping for, and left with no other alternative, they re-dope up Clark to deposit him back into his bed. Now, over in Kate's place, we find a Renee dealing with the holiday blues as Charlie has gone completely delusional, slipping into his own past and projecting his old acquaintances onto Renee. Now, in a nice touch, if you go back to read Denny O'Neill's landmark work with the character, you can find nearly every line from his ramblings here are actually from his history. It's absolutely heartbreaking to watch not only Charlie and the state, but how nobly Renee tries to bear up under the mounting stress. Things continue to spiral downward as he bounces from screaming agony and the delirium with them finally forced into a hospital with a forlorn Renee turns on the TV to a horrific sight. You see, following the failed attempt at questioning Clark, to say that Lex is in a bad state of mind is a definite understatement. His repeated failure to give himself powers on top of the rising profile of Supernova pushed him and he doesn't push well as we see him pull a device and press a button as the New Year's countdown reaches its end and the everyman subject's powers are shut off, causing mass deaths as they plummet from the sky during the height of the celebration. So the sky is falling as we have the proverbial reign of the supermen, who moments ago had been a focal point for the New Year's celebration, plummet into the onlookers below. Lex watches on gloatingly as Supernova and an unwitting Infinity Inc., who are still powered up, leap into action to save those that they can. They struggle valiantly, but as they take stock of the situation, Nat sees the obvious pattern and starts believing John. When they've all done what they can, with the injured being taken to St. Camillus, which sets John into motion, scrambling the Titans, Infinity Inc., minus the missing everyman, are all given clean bills of health, with Lex stressing that he needs them more than ever to help win back public opinion. Now, as I just mentioned, Nat now sees Luther's hand behind all of the deaths, and she confides in Jake, who promises to stand by her side no matter what. That's what it means to love someone, after all. Nat makes contact with John, saying that she's on his side now and will dig into what she can as she and Jake move to confront Dr. Laughlin when his entire lab explodes in flames. As Mercy leads a rescue team into the Inferno, where she comes across a report that will have a great interest to Lex. As Lex's remaining team of scientists rush to put something into motion, Jake discovers something that he just has got to show Nat. He leads her off into another chamber where he's, she sees a grisly scene as we find another Jake, dead and missing his lower legs. At this point, Hannibal reveals himself while admitting that he likes the way Jake tastes. Natasha, horrified, lashes out and has every man on the ropes when Lex intervenes, easily overpowering her. That's the truth that Mercy uncovered. Laughlin had been lying the entire time and forging the results. Let's has powers. Now, at the sight of the Stygians' recent slaughter, our unlikely team of heroes are a wee bit daunted in the face of the horde they need to stop when they fall back on the age-old plan of walking directly into the enemy's clutches, posing as Lobo's prisoners. She was the one who originally put the bounty on their heads, after all. They basically stroll right in at that point, but it turns out that Lady Six isn't real keen on paying out bounties, and will instead slaughter and consume them all. 
Her forces begin to drag the others off as Lobo struggles mightily to maintain his pacifist vows, but at some questionable translating by his space dolphin guide, he finally cuts loose, tearing through her ranks and ending with her being devoured by a cosmic sun eater. He won, but it's not at no cost, with, with froth seeping from his mouth, Animal Man dies in Starfire's arms. Animal Man dies in Starfire's arms when we get a quick cut to Earth where his wife Ellen inexplicably out of nowhere sheds a tear. Archbishop Lobo holds a ceremony for the fallen hero before taking off towards Earth. As they rocket off into space, the sun breaks the horizon and based off of being his close contact with the Sun Eaters, that proves to be enough to revive him. Now, however, he's trapped in space as he's confronted by two strange aliens. Elsewhere, helplessly watching on as Charlie sinks ever further, Renee finds again that some mystical plant sent by Tot can't endure the journey from Nanda Parbat. It all comes back to it being her fault Charlie's failing so fast, having left that mystical land to return to Gotham to save Kate. It's here, in this dark moment, she makes the admittedly poor choice to return Charlie there despite the odds stacked against just the two of them surviving the journey. It's a move born of desperation, and over Kate's objections, Renee sets out to cross half the world with the delirious dying man who so profoundly changed her life. She has the best of intentions, but no real clue on how to carry them out as she doesn't know the path, nor does she speak the native language. Charlie's going even further now, convinced that she's trying to poison him and treating her with a harsh disdain. Consistently shooting him up with morphine to dull the pain, Renee doggedly drags a litter through the snow as we see Charlie looking almost skeletal as the cancer is feeding on him ravenously. She's getting desperate, still unsure of her direction, but press on she must. She's getting close when a racking cough from Charlie is accompanied with a fount of blood. This brings on one last moment of clarity. He's dying, and there's no way to stop it. But she never answered the first question. Who are you? It cuts to the heart of Renee's whole journey, as it's not answered by who she is now, but rather what she will become. It's the final lesson Charlie had to teach as he passes on, leaving Renee still wrestling with the answers as the storm clears, revealing Nanda Parbat just past them. So close, yet so far. Now, at this point, we finally catch a glimpse of Supernova when he's not, you know, mid-catastrophe, and lo and behold, he's with the elusive time hopper Skeets has been hunting for, Rip Hunter. He's clearly still a bit unhinged, as we saw from the manic writings in his bunker, and as he continues to fail at cobbling together something that they'll need to stop Skeets and fix time. To be a bit more specific, he's cobbling with the Staff of Starman, the kryptonite gauntlet we'd seen in the Batcave, amongst other powerful artifacts. It's at this point we pan out to see their hiding spot is the bottle city of Kandor, deep in the heart of Superman's Fortress of Solitude, which is how they've managed to elude Skeets. They've gone microscopic. Unfortunately, it then pans out a final time to see our nefarious robot hovering outside. His prey in sight, Skeets attacks the jar, endangering the Kryptonian residents inside if they won't come out. Supernova goes to confront the threat, with Hunter telling him to leave the costume because he's going to need the tech it contains. The figure then grows, making you think it's the Atom, but as the flash fades away, we finally discover the identity of Supernova. It is Michael Carter. Booster Gold is alive and kicking. In a stalling tactic, Booster fills in the blanks as the two former friends battle throughout the fortress. Hunter had been down in the bunker when Michael checked out and filled him in on what Skeets was up to. A little time hopping later, followed with a little with bringing his actual corpse back from the future, and Booster was off the grid to help Rip. 
This really adds an entirely different dimension to Nova's mocking a booster just before his death, doesn't it? It's here when Hunter joins the fray, using the tech from the Nova suit, which was actually made using the Phantom Zone projector, that things really kick up a notch. Rather than being pulled into the Kryptonian prison realm, Skeets devours its entirety, which is something a robot just shouldn't be able to do, as our heroes flee into the time stream with Skeets in hot pursuit. Now, over on Oolong, the Mad Doctors are in, as we head back to the island following their absence since Thanksgiving. Magnus has an entirely new outlook now that he's been forcefully taking off his meds. They really were taking the zest out of life, he realizes, as he's finally unleashing the, his genius. We've luckily returned just in time to see the results of Eggfu's whole operation as they managed to create their four horsemen, genetically engineered beings whose powers are heavily inspired by the biblical ones. However, only three emerge as the fourth famine has already been loosed upon the world. As time passes, we see that Waller's plan is in full effect, as even here in the heart of their power in Kandak, newspapers run the headline proclaiming Osiris a murderer, which, I mean, to be fair, he is. He's crushed at being cast in this role, but at the very least, loyal Sobek is by his side. Adriana and Adam's worry over Osiris has halted as rain falls from a moments ago clear sky, instantly killing the gardens through which they walk. We're almost there, guys, as we enter the last fourth of this sprawling story with John Henry Irons, no longer able to contact Natasha, suiting up alongside the Titans and launches an assault on Lex's tower. The Titans square off with Infinity Inc. as steel rockets straight through the intervening floors to Lex's office. There, he easily drops Mercy and gets engulfed in a hug from Nat, who shifts into a giant crab as it's every man in disguise. Steel triumphs over the sicko, though his armor is shattered in the process, as, hammer in hand, he goes towards his final confrontation with Luther. What he's not aware of, though, is Lex has made himself a Superman and tosses John around with disdain, talking of his plans as the head of a new Justice League when Natasha, using Steel's souped-up hammer, sends out an energy pulse, shutting down Luther's powers, much as he did to those on New Year's. We don't get to actually witness the beating that ensues here, but this is one of those times where I don't mind it being off-panel as it allows you to imagine it in your own way. But, you know, some of you might be disappointed here as we catch a parting shot of Lex lying at the feet of the triumphant Irons family. Later on, as the Steels oversee Luther being taken into custody on his way to the arraignment, Clark Kent senses something's off and leads them as well as the police to a hidden room where we find Lex Luther as the other one that they'd just been with turns out to be the thought-dead everyman in disguise. Luther, of course, claims to have no knowledge of what Hannibal was up to with the masquerade. There, having won the day and their relationship repaired, John and Natasha open up a new venture, a team, if you will, called Steelworks, where they get their very first employee, where they get their very first employee, Kayla from Star Labs, who developed more than friendship while helping John over the last year. In Kondok, the poisonous rains continue to fall as diseases long since eradicated run rampant, both combining to end the graveyards, filling all too rapidly. It's clear to Osiris, at least, just what's befallen the land, and it's all his fault for losing control and bringing the curse upon the land. He, with Sobek at his side, must journey to the Rock of Eternity so that he can renounce these evil powers. They're the cause. As Sobek whines about being hungry, the two journey down to the rock where they're greeted by the Marvel family. He tries to explain that it's the power that's corrupting everything, and as he begs Billy to remove the powers, Adam and Isis stride in with Adam calling BS on the whole thing. 
Pressured into backing down, Osiris and slugs Adam before accidentally hurting Isis while brawling with Marvel Jr. This shocks him out of it, and he agrees to return to Kondok to help with the relief effort with a stop to, you know, grab Sobek a snack. Later on, Osiris confides to Sobek that he was merely playing along in the cave and fully plans to abandon Kondok. Trying to help him through this, Sobek points out that he could just, you know, say the word and return to his human form, though that, of course, would mean he'd be, again be crippled. Seeing it as a necessary penance that he must bear, Osiris shifts back, wondering if this might not fix thing when Sobek springs forward, biting him in half, revealing himself to be the fourth horseman famine. Now, unfortunately for Adam Strange and Starfire, though Styx is dead, the bounty is still active as they're repeatedly attacked on their way home, resulting in their ship, their only means of travel being wrecked. Things are looking grim as the lifeless ship tumbles in an orbit of the Red Sun when a planet shows up out of nowhere as they crash instead onto the surface of Mogo, the planetoid Green Lantern, finally finding a safe haven. Buddy, meanwhile, is trying to figure out the mute alien's meaning when, with his life hanging in the balance, he reaches farther than he ever has, touching on the Sun Eaters from earlier, gaining the ability to get himself home. Now, on a slightly less happy note, a pregnant alien is ripped open from within as the Lady Styx is reborn just as she was when she died, like an hour ago. I get that it's a revolving door, but I mean, come on. But, you know, anyway, I digress. Renee is not handling the loss of Charlie well, with a sparring battle with Richard Dragon where he tries to force her to see herself as she will be, proves to be overwhelming, sending her fleeing from the mirror-like ice cave. Eventually, we find her settled down on a bench alongside the incognito Wonder Woman who gives just the right push at just the right time, which brings Renee back to the cave where she gazes into its walls, staring into herself, if you will, as she's finally ready to unmask her true self. Well, kinda. She sees herself as Charlie was when on the job, bearing the faceless mask of the question, but she's not sure if she's ready to live up to that example. At this point, we rejoin Ralph at the former residence of Dr. Morrow Haven, where he's seeking to speak with Professor Milo, the Technomancer. Now, given Morrow's recent escape, they refuse him access on the grounds of tightening security, but he manages to talk his way in by finding the teleportation microcircuitry in Morrow's cell, which is how he got out in the first place. Inside, believing Milo's fake in being a paraplegic, Ralph rips a wheel from his wheelchair, revealing it to be the silver wheel of Neorath. The horrified doctor in charge comes storming in as Milo's clearly not faking, which sends Ralph fleeing onto the final stage of his quest. In the Tower of Fate, Ralph begins conducting the ritual under the guidance of the helm. At the precipice of achieving his goal, Ralph takes a draw of his flask to help bolster his courage. He then dons the helm and proceeds to draw the gun that he had taken from the Flash Museum and shoots himself in the head, causing the helm to fly off as it's revealed to have been possessed by Felix Foss, the man supposedly trapped in hell that we saw last week. Now, confident and rock solid, we see Ralph, ever the detective, has known almost from the start and has had his own plan and play. The place having been sealed magically, thus trapping him in, Faust launches an attack when we learn that Ralph isn't a graduate of the Montoya School of Coping, but has actually had Gen Gold in his flask, which is what grants him his stretching abilities. It's as he has Faust at gunpoint, we learn that it's in fact a wishing gun, and that's exactly what it sounds like, by the way. And here's where Neron, the devil if you will, comes for Faust's soul. Ralph goads the demon into killing him, making the spells of binding unbreakable, forever trapping away these two great evils at the cost of his life, a truly heroic sacrifice. 
Adam is rocked while flying alongside his bride as the powers of Osiris return to him, along with the knowledge that something's gone horribly wrong. They find his mangled corpse that's awfully decomposed for having been among the living moments ago as they're confronted by Sobek, the betrayer. This was his plan all along. He'd only snuck into Savannah's place shortly before they arrived in order to get into position to weaken them for his brother's arrival, which happens while he's monologuing. Adam tears open Sobek's mouth and battles war while he urges Isis to go on the offensive as she dances around avoiding the diseases of pestilence. Eventually, though, she's caught by him as she's pumped full of his poisons. With the last of her strength, she calls upon the earth to drive off the horseman death, saving Adam in the process, and this is the moment Adam finally breaks. As she gasps her final words, Isis, who at this point has only preached peace since her introduction, calls instead for vengeance for what has been done to their family. Having come so close to true happiness, Adam's backlash at having it taken away is going to be a terrible sight to behold. As Isis dies, the flower she gave to Renee all those months ago finally dies, the source of its life being no more. Renee is saddened by this, but has learned her lesson and not giving in to despair, and is instead pushed by Dragon and Tot to fulfill Charlie's wishes, as well as her own destiny. She must find the answers now is the question. Our two survivors meet up one last time at Isis's funeral, with tensions exploding between the two as Adam directs her to handle inner game back home in Gotham while he handles them here. Death had retreated to the nearby country by Allah, and Adam follows suit, killing that country's president who was on Intergain's payroll, before turning to the armed forces. The world watches on as Adam slaughters everyone in Bayala, with the U.S. and Waller in particular scrambling to mount a response team. In the matter of just 36 hours, he's slaughtered millions before finally confronting his target death, who's actually grown stronger with every death. He's no match for the enraged Adam, who repeatedly calls down the lightning, blasting death with each strike, before torturing the locations of Oolong Island out of it. A new target in his sights, he rockets away as he prepares for the battle of the nerds versus the jock in a tropical paradise. As Maru ignores the chaos going on around them as he tries to buy the tornado's head via an online auction, the other scientists scramble to meet Adam's attack to little or no success. Dr. Kale, the scientist all the others drool over, is breaking at this point, and after jumping the bones of Doc Magnus, she stumbles out half-undressed, prepared to die, only to be ignored by Adam. Wilt rallies the science squad as they unleash their tech in a coordinated assault on Adam, with him finally going down when Morrow, auction nearly confirmed, deigns to turn and offer a hand, which leads to them capturing Black Adam. Back in America, Adam Smasher, having walked away from the Suicide Squad, joins up with his old teammates in the JSA as they go to try to bring Adam in. They better hurry, though, as Dr. Savannah conducts torturous experiments on Adam, which Will Magnus in particular finds the constant screaming to be a torture in and of itself, as he contemplates his plutonium man that he knows will be crazed if he activates it. He feels an irresistible urge to do it anyway, but is shortly talked back out of it by his tiny metal men, who they're going to play an important role here fairly shortly. Now, before we check in with Renee's quest in Gotham, we stop once again in Nanda Parba as we discover the friend Diana was waiting on was Bruce, who's currently unavailable, but at least Tim's got somebody to voice his concerns to. The whole ordeal is odd, even for them, but Diana points out that you never know how things will turn out, so don't lose the faith. 
Diana then gains her audience with Ramakrishna, who tells her that she must live amongst humanity if she seeks to reclaim her own, just as Bruce finally emerges from his days of isolation with a grin on his face. We then see Whisper Adair offering up sacrifices in an attempt to divine Batwoman's location, but not meeting with much success. Mannheim places all the blame on one of his men who had been forced to let her go when Nightwing interfered, and as a fight between them breaks out, Whisper figures out the double meaning of the name Cain, which will help to greatly narrow down the search. There can be only so many women with the last name Cain and the resources to become the Batwoman. Renee ends up reaching Kane's apartment where she meets Nightwing as they find that Kate's already be ta been taken and they have to plan on how to get her back from Intergain's clutches. Nightwing and Renee are tearing into the various Intergain fronts trying to track down a lead on the missing Batwoman. They know time is running out and soon Kate will be sacrificed as the prophecy says, bringing about the dawn of Intergain's global dominance. In a particularly strong effort, their targets for questioning trigger a device that causes columns of burning energy to appear, digging down into the bedrock of Gotham. What's worse is that this is just the first step, as eventually all of the columns will be drawn to the epicenter, leaving Gotham a fiery crater. Nightwing takes charge, planning to split up to handle the devices around the city, but Renee balks. He can work on the machines while she goes for Mannheim, finally fully embracing her role as the question. She makes her way into the sanctum, where Kate is laid out in preparation to be sacrificed when all hell breaks loose as guards swarm Renee, who fights desperately to reach Kate. The thugs prove to be delayed enough as Renee finally breaks free just in time to see Mannheim plunge the ceremonial dagger into the chest of Kate. Renee drives Mannheim back in a burst of gunfire, leading, finding Kate in a very dangerous position but not quite dead yet when Bruno reappears and begins to hand Renee quite a beating. He has her at his mercy, ready to pull the trigger. When a surge of strength from Kate, she pulls the blade from her own chest and hurls it spinning across the room directly into his back, killing him as her own strength gives out as she collapses with Renee, desperately trying to keep her alive. Now, still captured on Oolong Island, Adam is in bad shape as Savannah has been given free reign to find new ways of hurting the Marvels. He may not be held much longer, though, whether it's an improvement or not is debatable, as Eggfu offers him public enemy number one to the highest bidder out of the governments of the world. At this point, the JSA shows up, not seeking to bid, but rather to save him from the torture and have him face his crimes. Before they can force their way in, China's Great Ten show up, claiming the island and everything on it belongs to them. Egg Fu confronts Magnus at just what's holding up his plutonium man, where it's revealed that even without his meds, despite its bouts of mania, he never was really working for them. Instead, he rebuilt his metal men in a smaller form to escape notice, and they spring into action, battling the rotten egg. As things inside the giant lab goes off rails as they are outside, the former mentor, Dr. Morrow, tries to get Will to back down, but it's too late, as Will has dropped the facility shielding, opening the path for the JSA. He still has a soft spot for his old mentor, though, as he helps Morrow teleport out of there, just in time for Egg Fu to get his wits about him as he re-engages with Will, again coming out on top, as he shatters the egg with rapid blasts from an appropriated gun. The JSA storms in, with Adam Smasher being the one to find Adam, who, upon being freed, tears out with further vengeance on his mind. Week 50 brings us to World War III, where after watching Adam tear through Egypt, not to mention the Marvel family as well, we see his war on the world tear right on through Australia and Italy before they get a beat on him in China. 
The world's heroes, primarily, you know, the American forces, have been forced away outside China's borders as missiles are ready to fly in retaliation should any outside advancement be made while the Great Ten try to deal with the threat. This stiff-necked belief that they can handle the situation on their own is near disastrous as the enraged black cannot be contained. He brings down his foes one by one, eventually forcing the August General to bed and ask for outside help. Now we have a battle of epic proportions as 50 or more heroes dogpile in on Adam, but even they can't seem to stop him. Steel and Natasha get their newly designed Thunder Missile in position for a strike, but out pops Booster Gold, who swipes it, claiming that he needs it more than they do. As more and more heroes fall before Adam's rage, the JSA make their move, and in a coordinated effort between the Shadow Pact and Shazam, they call down Billy's Lightning, redirecting it at Black Adam, forcing him into his mortal form. He disappears in the confusion, but finds to his dismay that, as the guardian of the Rock of Eternity, Billy has changed his magic word, and without knowing what it is, Adam is trapped this way and no longer a threat and left to wander the streets in shock. We get some brief stops at this point. Maro, having escaped Oolong, finally has the tornado's head, which he then dives into to diagnose the issues, and Wyatt keeps saying 52. While peering into its mind, he too comes to the understanding of the secrets Tornado glimpsed as Booster and Hunter arrive to draft him in their little war with Skeets over the fate of the multiverse. Elsewhere, we see Ellen, Animal Man's wife, who has finally accepted that he's gone, returning from a date where she realizes that she's just not over him yet. She wonders at just how foolish she is for being unable to let go when a blinding light appears before fading as a returned Buddy Baker has finally come home. They and the kids are, of course, ecstatic, and as they fill each other in on the last year, we see some off-panel dialogue as some of Styx's bounty hunters have followed him home. The hunters make their move, ringing the doorbell, drawing Ellen into harm's way when Starfire, here to give the falling Animal Man's jacket to his surviving wife, incinerates them before fainting at the sight of Animal Man still alive. In a celebration at Metropolis, honoring those who fell in this most recent war, we really start picking up the threads that will drive the ongoings going forward. Donna Troy has stepped up into the role of Wonder Woman as Diana has decided to take Ramakushna's advice and has joined the Department of Metahuman Affairs as Di Agent Diana Prince. Bruce has also finally returned from sabbatical, recentered and refocused as he and Clark marvel at the changes in her. So with all of that now out of the way, let's say we go ahead and wrap up our finally dangling story thread as we rejoin Morrow in a workshop in the Rocky Mountains where he's tracked down by Skeets. Turns out, however, that this was the plan as Rip and Michael emerge to confront the mad robot. It's at this point the final mask is dropped as it turns out that it's not Skeets. It's Mr. Mime behind the whole thing. He had devoured and replaced the robot to await his 52-week gestation as the metal casing clatters to the floor, revealing the giant evolved Mr. Mine, and believe me, it's a whole new ballgame now. Realizing they missed their window, Hunter drags Booster into the time sphere for one last desperate play as they travel back to where it all started. They've gone back, one year in time, to when the multiverse was reborn following Alexander Luther's playing God. Using Tornado's map of said multiverse allows them to move between them, which is key to stopping the now unbelievably powerful Mr. Mind. But things are looking bad, as the worm blasts them with the energies of the Phantom Zone that had devoured in an attempt to trap them, which is turned aside by the re-emerging Supernova, who suit, having been made from the projector itself, absorbs the energy saving them, for the moment. Inside the Time Sphere, we find out Nova is Michael's ancestor Dan, who Rip had freed from the imprisonment where Skeets had left him. 
They start randomly jumping between worlds as mine starts devouring entire years from each Earth's history. We see a glimpse of what the future holds if they can't stop mine as he'll reproduce, creating even more like him that eventually they'll devour the entirety of all universes. Booster, true to form, is overwhelmed by the enormity of their task. Why trust the fate of everything to a screw-up like him when Skeets, still hanging on in some corner of a circus, gives Booster the encouragement that he needs? Golden Hunter step out through time with Michael getting a last visit with his best friend Blue Beetle who died leading to an infinite crisis where there he grabs the powered scarab which he's going to use as a power source while Rip pays a visit to the savannas where he steals some suspendium. Basically suspendiums like man-made encapsulated time. They make their final play at the other place where this all began, Rip's time bunker. There, mind having shrunk down to follow them, they lay Skeets' shell with the suspendium, which Michael then uses to trap mind inside. He'll break free, but it's bought them time. Michael and Dan, working together, force the shell against time's flow, devolving mind and leaving him to be, leaving him to be found by Dr. Savannah, setting up the story we know. The worm is now stuck in a time loop it can't escape as the threat to the multiverse passes. They have victory, but Michael's lost another of his closest allies, which he struggles with before Rip shows that he had planned ahead and downloaded his memory as Skeets will live again. So all of our threads have turned out fairly well, but there's one last little bit to get to here. During Energain's attempt to turn Gotham into a fiery pit from Apocalypse, one of the gateways had opened up in a daycare. The children had survived, but before the pit had opened, they had all drawn horrific images as if on cue which it was, kind of, as it ties into Darkseid and the coming Final Crisis that we'll get, get to eventually, but at this point, it's all a mystery, which draws two ghostly detectives to the scene as Ralph and his wife Sue are reunited in the afterlife, but even dead, he can't stay away from a mystery. His nose just won't stop twitching. So there you have it, guys. It took a lot more time than I planned, and the intricacy of the plot proved to be somewhat of a challenge for me to sum up, but I hope you enjoyed this extended look at 52. It really is one of my favorite stories. Next week, alongside the returning weekly pool and soapbox segments, we're finally making the jump back to Marvel. Now, whether, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but I ran a poll on Twitter as to what you guys wanted me to see me focus on in the next block, and you responded with a resounding vote for Secret Wars. So what we're going to do is, over the next few weeks, we're going to cover a few of the arcs that all tie into it, with the first being the original 12-issue event itself, 1984 Secret Wars. It's a fun story mixing all sorts of heroes and villains in a massive battle for the enjoyment of a cosmic entity. We'll see the debut of the infamous spider symbiote suit Spider-Man wears that of course goes on to become Venom as well, so I'm really looking forward to this. Of course, as always, you can find it on Marvel Unlimited and read along with me as we go through it. Remember to reach out through any of the usual methods, and if you don't mind, drop a review for the show wherever you're listening to me from. Thanks for hanging out this week, and remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.